Then, of course, there's, well, what are you going to do when someone who, who you don't like comes to power? Someone who has different social goals than you. And that's something that people forget. They feel quite comfortable advocating for the wielding of discretionary power when their person or their party or their group is in charge. But that's not always going to be the case. Welcome once again to the Essential Scholars podcast, where I'm joined this week by Christopher Coyne, who is one of the co-authors of our Essential Austrian book, along with Peter Betke. Chris is the Associate Director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, and the F.A. Harper Professor of Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He is also a Professor of Economics and Director of Graduate Studies in the Economics Department at George Mason University. He specializes in Austrian economics, economic development, emerging democracies, post-war and disaster reconstruction, political economy, and social change. In the last episode, Chris and I talked about uh, the key components of the Austrian school of thought. Um, and today we're going to talk about how to apply some of those ideas in a more modern context. How can the Austrian school be useful today? So thank you again for joining us, Chris. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. Um, one thing we didn't really get a chance to talk about last time is um, interventionism, and the planning and power problem that Austrians talk about. And as I said last time, I think that this is a concept that is really important to talk about in today's world, where kind of the default position seems to be a desire for intervention and the government to do something about any social problem we come across. So I'd love it to hear a little bit about what those problems are and why they arise and, and where we can maybe see them in, in our modern policy conversations. Sure, yeah. And, and so the idea of interventionism is as follows. Governments have power. They have discretionary power to intervene into our lives, our, our social lives and our economic lives. Uh, they don't have to use it, but they often do. And as you correctly put it, there's often a call for them to do so. Now, the, the question is, what does that presume on the part of the planner? So one of the things we always want to ask is what burden is being placed on those who are tasked with doing whatever it is we want them to do? In this case, intervening in markets to do what? Well, presumably to bring about a better state of affairs, to increase welfare of people. Um, that's the stated purpose of interventions, typically. It, it's to, to improve the, the every person's life, or at least a, a large segment of the population. Well, that presumes, number one, that the interveners have the knowledge to do that. So they know better than the natural state of affairs what is necessary to bring about the end. Of course, if they didn't believe that, they wouldn't intervene in the first place. There'd be no urge to intervene because they would realize they can do no better. The second thing that is presumed is that interveners have the incentive to act on that knowledge. And this is where the idea of the dynamics of interventionism comes into play. It's that when governments use their discretionary power to intervene in markets, oftentimes it has a chain of consequences that are some of which are, are readily observable and immediate. Others are long-term. 
and let me provide an example which which we use in the in the uh, the essential book um, to to motivate this. Imagine you know an example. I mean, there's many examples of this in the world, so it's not too hard to imagine a price control. And let's pick a price control on milk, and 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 we say, well, look, we want to put a price control on milk. A price control being a legal cap on how much you can charge for a gallon of milk in order to help people that are income constraint. They have a, a low budget for food. They have kids perhaps. So you can see why someone would want to do that. We want to help people that are income constrained. So we cap the price of milk. Well, what happens? Well, basic economics says that when you cap the price of something, it's going to result in a, a shortage of that because prices cannot adjust to reflect genuine supply and demand conditions. That's the immediate observe uh, uh, outcome of this. And, and all economists would pretty much agree with that. That's a standard economics. But what the Austrians point out is there's a chain of consequences that, that results from this. So for instance, milk producers will change their behavior. They're going to adjust their behavior because they can't profit as much from producing milk because the price can't increase in order to uh, uh, alleviate the shortage. So then they might start doing other things with those scarce resources other than producing milk. Uh, what else might happen? Uh, people might substitute into milk substitutes, almond milk, for instance, and that drives the price of that up, which then makes that less available to people who otherwise might want to consume it. Perhaps people that have uh, uh, allergies to, to milk, um, you know, standard cow milk. Uh, and then what else happens? Well, you get distortions in the actual process of production. And so only when you appreciate this complex capital structure, do you appreciate that once you mess with one part of it, it has ripple effects throughout the entire structure of production. So what can politicians do? Well, they intervene and it starts leading to distortions. And they really have two options. One is they can retract the intervention or they can intervene again. They can give subsidies out to, to people to uh, 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 purchase the more expensive milk substitutes, or they can provide subsidies to farmers to produce more milk, or they can uh, implement commands and say, you must produce more milk, or they can nationalize part of the milk production process to increase milk. Those are just some of the options, but it highlights how an intervention has ripple effects. What else might we observe? Well, if, if entrepreneurs know that governments are going to intervene, they have an incentive to shape those interventions. They have an incentive to try to convince politicians to design and implement regulations in a way that benefits them. So you start seeing the rise, for instance, of lobbying, where you have private entrepreneurs shift their attention from satisfying the wants of private consumers to instead trying to satisfy the wants of politicians uh, who can... Uh, 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 either enrich them uh, or impoverish them uh, through discretionary political power. And so those are just some of the kind of the, the various effects, some seen, some unseen that occur once you unleash this process of interventionism, which is one of the reasons why those in the Austrian tradition tend to be skeptical of government interventionism. It's not, you know, contrary to belief, it's not, you know, a violation of the non-aggression axiom or some kind of first principles or normative inherent normative benchmark that interventionism is bad for the sake of interventionism. It's the economic effects, the real effects, which is that there is no way for economic policymakers to know the efficient allocation of resources absent the process that generates them. 
So trying to intervene in a market to make it more efficient presumes that you know how to allocate resources to make it more efficient. But just like the central planners of the 1900s didn't know that, and when in the in the famous calculation debate, neither do policymakers today. Uh, and so uh, that's one of the the main points or takeaways from this theory of interventionism. How does that relate to kind of the power problem that uh, Lavoie's work brings up when it comes to planning of any kind, not just central planning, but even these smaller interventions? arguably suffer from what he calls the power problem. Yeah, so the, the book you referenced, The Economist is Don Lavoie. He was a, 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 a um, student in the Austrian tradition. Um, and one of the things that uh, he wrote about in, in a wonderful book published in 1985, National Economic Planning, What is Left? And, and the word left there has two meanings. One is left what remains of national economic planning after the, the um, the, the failing of economic central planning. But then what is left referring to the ideological left? And so one of the, the kind of main proponents or, or, or category of the main proponents of planning historically has been those on the left who argue that you can use planning to help the most vulnerable in society, the worst off, and to protect them and insulate them, not just from the pressures of capitalism, but from things like monopoly power, from exploitation by capitalist producers and so on. And Lavoie said, well, wait a second, something is missing from your analysis, which is when you give planners control over the economic apparatus, you also give them discretionary control over people's lives. And so then the question becomes, who is going to tend to rise to positions of power when you give significant amounts of discretionary power to a few people? And more often than not, it is not going to be the every person. It is not going to be the most vulnerable who are able to control the levers of power. Typically, it is going to be the well-connected. It is going to be those that are already powerful. Uh, and oftentimes, uh, those that feel comfortable wielding control over the lives of other people uh, have other unsavory characteristics, or they wouldn't feel comfortable telling their fellow human beings how to live their life what they can and can't consume, what and how things should be produced, and so on. Uh, and so uh, uh, what is required then is an appreciation uh, of our shared concern for the welfare of our fellow human beings, and especially the most vulnerable. And what that oftentimes means is not granting more centralized power to people, but less. That decentralizing power is crucial from protecting the very people we want to assist and aid. And that's really one of the important points that Lavoie drove home, that when you grant power to planners in the name of, of the common good, it often can be turned against the very people that you purport to want to assist and help. And that's something I think we need to be very cautious and careful about um, and that many people take for granted. A lot of people care about social justice issues, but this idea of the, the power problem suggests that the political process might not be able to accomplish social justice goals. Um, what kind of tools would the Austrians suggest that we use if we care about social justice, if we care about you know, inequality and, and racism and sexism and, and those types of social problems? 
Um, what can we do about them? Yeah. Well, first of all, I should say and, and, and be very clear about it. You know, all, economics is a field, whether it's Austrian economics or, or, or any other kind of tradition in economics. It has important insights to offer into a variety of problems, but it does not have answers to all of the world's ills. And so I certainly don't want, I, I say this caveat because I, I, I want to be very clear that there's no Austrian solution or economic solution to these issues per se. What, what economics and, and the Austrian tradition can help us do is think through some of the key aspects to inform broader discussions. And so, so what do I mean by that? Well, one of the things, for instance, that James Buchanan and F.A. Hayek emphasized is that distributional issues. So again, one of the issues with social justice is it means a lot of different things to different people. One of the things that's often captured in that is distributional issues. So distributional justice, you know, the, the distribution of resources or wealth. One of the things that Buchanan and, and Hayek argued is that because the market process cannot be known ahead of time, we need that process to generate certain knowledge and certain allocations of resources, that we shouldn't focus on allocations of resources that emerge through the market process and judge them to be good or bad. The, the place of focus is on the rules of the game. So the rules of the initial rules which facilitate the market process, if those are just, then outcomes of that process must be just. And that's a good point, I think, because it, it helps us place our focus on the rules governing property, for instance, um, and not just property like you know, uh, property over physical item, but property over your person, for instance. Uh, and so in many parts of the world, certain groups of people, whether it's based on gender, whether it's based on ethnicity, whether it's based on religion, they can't own property. They can't work. They can't drive. They can't interact with certain other groups of people. Recognizing that because Austrians place such an emphasis on institutions, including the informal institutions, are crucial for understanding what occurs in other societies, but also what the outcomes of that are. So, for instance, if you prevent an entire group of people from engaging in entrepreneurial activity because they, uh, they are of a certain gender, that's going to have real economic effects. You are curtailing a significant number of people who otherwise could engage in value-added economic activity. Now, pointing that out, identifying that, identifies the consequences of that. It doesn't tell you how to fix it. It to fix it is beyond the scope of economics. And one of the things, again, that I think the Austrians point out is, is this idea of negative knowledge. And this concept of negative knowledge actually goes to a Chicago economist by the name of Jacob, Jacob Viner. He's the one that, that, to my knowledge, first used the term. But negative knowledge is knowledge of things we can't know or fix. And that's a really important type of knowledge because it, it, it checks us. It, it, it keeps us humble. It says that I can have expertise about lots of things, some of them very broad, but there's some things I just can't know. And trying to fix the world runs the risk of making it worse off. And so to go back to your questions of what tools can Austrians use? Well, we can use the tools that, that you and I discussed in our, our previous conversation, our focus on people, on purposeful actions, on subjectivism. 
the way that that supposed experts see the world when they want to fix it is not necessarily the way the people on the ground who are being intervened upon see it. And that's important, again, because if we want to avoid doing more harm than good, then we must recognize our own limitations. And so the, the challenge isn't always how can we fix it? Perhaps the first step is can we fix it? So what, what can we understand about the world? And then what can be done given that understanding? And sometimes, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, but it's reality, there's not much we can do to fix things. We can help diagnose the problem, but there, there's no simple solution that we can write down in a simple set of steps. And actually trying to write down a simple set of steps runs the risk of, of hurting the very people we want to help and oftentimes the most vulnerable people in the society we're trying to, to assist. We need to avoid unintended secondary effects, which is what might emerge, especially if you don't understand the institutional context of the people you're intervening upon. That's right. So the Austrian framework might help us understand why some of the policy interventions that we have thought might be successful have achieved kind of the opposite of their effect. So you brought up having laws that don't permit uh, people of a certain gender to participate in the economy. Well, there have been lots of interventions in places across the world, like the, the Nordic states, where they have passed gender quotas and they have mandated you know, parental leave. Um, but the measures of gender inequality haven't been dramatically affected by those policies. So it can help us explain why things might have failed um, in unpredictable ways. That's right. Seems like Austrians are uh, a bit more humble than maybe uh, economists of other schools of thought in terms of what we can and cannot do. Sure, well, that, that's part of it. And then the other part of it, I think, is which ties in with our discussion of interventionism is politics, which is that when you grant political actors power to intervene, they need to devise a plan to intervene which means that they need inputs into the planning process. And that transforms the nature of economics. And, and here's what I mean about by that when I say it transforms the nature of it. What it does is it says, instead of using economics as a tool of understanding, it transforms it into a tool of social control, into I can devise a plan to make society better, whether it's a, a foreign society or even a domestic society, um, whether it's controlling the macro economy. And so... It, to provide a very kind of concrete illustration, you know, in, in The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith talks about the woolen coat on the day laborers back. And it's like, oh, how fascinating. How did this coat get there? And what is he trying to do? To understand the, the process through which people coordinate to produce a coat that then becomes available to an average person in society. That is understanding. Controlling is, I don't think there should be that coat. Or I think that coat should be made of this or that there should be more coats or this person should make the coat. That's the nature of interventionism. That is the, and that is different. That is not using economics as a tool of understanding. It is using it as a tool of control to move people around as if they are pawns on a chessboard that you can arrange to satisfy some grand vision that you have. And those are very different enterprises. Uh, the, the 
Austrian tradition tends to fall into the the former camp, the focus on understanding. Not again, and again, the, the claim isn't that nothing can be done to to improve the world. Instead, it is a humility about the 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 possibility of micromanaging the world. What do you think is the most misunderstood contribution of the Austrians? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that I, I think there's a couple. One is what we were just talking about, about, about the idea of interventionism, which is many people associate Austrian economics with being anti-government or anti-regulation or anti-intervention as if somehow that's some kind of inherent feature. Like, I don't like it like I don't like asparagus. Uh, but it's, it's, not, it's not a preference. It's not a, a preference argument. There's an actual analytical argument that, as we were just discussing. So that's one aspect. The other thing I, I would just mention very briefly is the Austrian view of markets and entrepreneurship. And so many people associate Austrians as, as being kind of the staunch defenders of markets as if markets are these perfect things. The, these, you know, they'll, they'll often invoke the idea of perfect competition and the uber efficiency of markets. And that misses the mark. The reason Austrians like the market process is precisely because people are imperfect. And one of the things that Austrians point out is that markets cannot be separated from individual actors. Markets are constituted by individual buyers and sellers who interact. The reason markets are desirable and the, and the various features of markets is because of our imperfections and limitations as human beings. We all make mistakes. We are all fallible constantly. Even the people that score the highest on IQ test and, and might be very smart on certain margins are plagued with errors just like all of us are. What markets allow is a process of contestation, of experimentation, of discovery, of innovation that allows us both to deal with our own fallibilities, but also to take advantage and benefit from the experimentation and discoveries of our fellow human beings. Uh, and so from that standpoint, the, the embracing of markets in the market process is not because of some inherent feature of markets. It's not because of, of efficiency for efficiency's sake. It is because it allows us to engage in that discovery process and leverage our humanness, our creativity. The really cool part of, of humanness is that we're, we're fallible, but we're also creative beings. And if you take subjectivism seriously, what you observe in the world is different from what I observe in the world. And that's a pretty amazing thing, not just because it makes life interesting interacting with different people. But what I don't see as a profit opportunity, you do. And because you do and you pursue it, you benefit not just yourself, but your fellow human beings. And if I was in charge, me being the hypothetical person that doesn't see that profit opportunity, and I said, that's ridiculous that you want to do that. We're not doing it. It would never be undertaken. And so that is the, the gist of the, of the nature of the market, but also the leveraging of the diversity of people. And so one of the things that Austrians emphasize is it is the diversity of human beings, which drives the market process. And it's the subjectivism tied up with that diversity, the fact that we perceive the world differently. So from that standpoint, arguments about you know, uh, inclusion of different people in the market process, the inclusion, not just domestically, but internationally, arguments for free trade across borders, again, is not just for the sake of trade for the sake of trade. It is because it allows us to take advantage of the diversity of other economic actors 
who just happened to be existing in a different geographical space. And that a significant cost of curtailing that trade is cutting off human creativity and entrepreneurship. And I think that's a point, especially today with the kind of renewed emphasis on economic nationalism, uh, mercantilism, as it was called in the past, misses out on the, the, the uh, you know, for all the talk of, of diversity and inclusion, you rarely hear the benefits of, of peaceful market interactions in both allowing that, but also advancing those very things. And I think that's a really fascinating and important part of, of the market process, which needs to be emphasized more. Well, that reminds me, I think in your book, After War, you talk a lot about soft power as opposed to um, trying to export democracy at the point of a gun. Uh, that seems to relate a little bit to what you just were talking about. Yeah, so so soft power is this idea of convincing people of things rather than imposing it upon them or trying to impose it upon them. Uh, and, and, you know, the idea of this in, in markets, several people have talked about it, but there's a, a famous development economist named P.T. Bauer, who taught at the London School of Economics. And he pointed this out. One of the, the things he pointed out about development and trade is that people learn and develop through the process of interacting with other people. So it's not just the, the immediate efficiency effects of moving resources around from higher to excuse me, from lower valued uses to higher valued uses. That's important, by the way. But for Bauer, the other thing that's really important is people learn by interacting. They learn what works and what doesn't work. They learn what businesses practice practices learn, uh, what works and what doesn't work in business practices and organizations. Lots of different things, uh, different cultural practices. And that's a really fascinating feature of human interaction, uh, one that's often neglected in models that abstract from all of those institutional nuances. Uh, but again, the, the the Austrians have always emphasized these points. So it, it, it's central to that narrative that they tell about the richness of the market process. We're not just trading goods and services. We're trading kind of bits and pieces of our, our culture and and ideas and knowledge and all of that. That's right. What are some kind of current policy conversations that, are going on that we think that Austrians might have something useful to say about? Sure. Well, there, there's a lot, I would say. Uh, one, one we just touched upon, which is, you know, the rise of economic nationalism and, and the idea of, you know, it, it's, it's a view of the world where it's a zero sum, actually negative sum view of the world um, uh, 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 based on nation states. And so China gets wealthy at the expense of you know, uh, uh, the United States uh, or, or, or Canada or, or whatever country you want to insert. That assumes that there's some fixed stock of wealth that some group of people get and harms other people. So it's, it's almost like a game of musical chairs in a way. Uh, but that's not right. Uh, when, you, when you have a view of, of the market process as one that doesn't just move around existing resources, which it does, but in that process, it generates new wealth. That's the entrepreneurial market process, and that's a very different view. What else? Well, tied up with that is the rise of entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial policy. And so many countries now are making a move tied up with economic nationalism to have these private partner, private public partnerships or, or what some people call state entrepreneurship. Uh, the argument goes that 
uh, you know, countries need to become self-sufficient uh, uh, and produce more at home. And in order to do that, they need to be competitive. In order to be competitive, uh, they need state subsidies uh, or, or state partnerships. Uh, maybe, uh, but again, we need to take into account the, the costs of these things, one of them being opportunity cost. So that's real resources being used. One is that when you start doing this, you change the nature of capitalism. You change the nature of markets. And I think this is a really important part point that's missed. If you, if you listen to many people, not all, but many people, the issues that they raise about capitalism are areas or, or industries oftentimes where there is heaviest political involvement. And, and so it varies from country to country. But, you know, you look at in many countries and you see industries such as the financial sector, the healthcare sector, the educational sector, uh, the transportation sector sometimes. Uh, these are areas where there's oftentimes heavy entanglements between the private and public sector. Uh, and that undermines many of the desirable features of markets because it, it, it cuts out the consumer as the focal point of what entrepreneurs or, or of whom entrepreneurs are trying to satisfy and replaces that with uh, political, uh, uh, the political elite. Uh, and so this idea of political capitalism, I think, think is extremely important. And it's something we need to keep in mind. Uh, and and uh, one of your former professors, uh, uh, Randy Holcomb, uh, has perhaps what I, the best book on this. It's called Political Capitalism. It's, a, it's an academic book, but for people that are listening to this interested and, and are interested in this, I, I highly recommend it. Um, came out a couple of years ago, and it's a very detailed treatment of the nature of political capitalism and the uh, corrosive effects it has on the market process and on human well-being. And that's something I think is very important. So anything we can do to reduce political capitalism is a good, in my estimation, in, uh, good from the standpoint of making people better off. Uh, and uh, as we think through the various challenges we face today, whether it's trade, whether it's entrepreneurship, whatever it is, always ask yourself, if I allow policymakers to do this, what avenues or channels does it open up for private interests to influence that? And then don't be surprised when it happens. If, if you grant government lots of power, lots of resources, entrepreneurs are going to flock to that like bees flock to honey. They're going to uh, redirect their entrepreneurial focus to placating government because that is a source of revenue. Uh, and uh, that undermines uh, the, the uh, desirable effects of markets or many of them. And so that's another area where I think we can uh, uh, think about uh, uh, what Austrian economics means for policy. The final thing we might talk about, and I'll just mention it and then we can either talk about it or move on, is, is in macroeconomics as well. Um, and, and of course, there's many arguments today about spending and the role of deficits. Uh, and I think that's an important aspect too, given the Austrian focus on capital structures, on, on interventionism and the distortionary effects of government policy and so on. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because one very popular um, theory that's being discussed, especially in, in the policy world these days, is modern monetary theory, um, that the theory associated with post-Keynesian school of thought. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what Aust how Austrians would, would respond to that type of policy recommendation? Yeah. So again, let me start with a caveat, which is I, I would hope people go and read and study these things on their own. And I can't do full justice to these ideas in, in the short time we have. And I, I say that because a lot of these discussions oftentimes straw man arguments on both sides. And so he, here's what I understand the main kind of tenets of, of, of this theory to be, uh, which is that deficits uh, don't matter. Uh, uh, that is, it is wrong to view government as analogous to a private business or to your household or to my household. So in, in our households or any household or business, you can leverage debt, but there's strong constraints on it. You have to make payments. Um, you have to uh, uh, kind of the bottom line matters. Um, it, the argument is that government is not subject to those same, same constraints. I'll come back to that in a moment, why that's the case. The, so you get deficits don't matter. Monetary policy should be secondary. So fiscal policy should be the driver and monetary policy sh should be subordinate to, to monetary policy. Likewise, fiscal policy should be used to achieve certain social outcomes. We can come back to that in a moment as well. On top of that, then, monetary authorities should be willing to issue base money to, guarantee, uh, to, to fund government. Uh, taxation plays a key role in this as well, which we can talk about. Um, but but here's the gist behind the argument, at least the way I understand it, behind, behind the modern monetary theory. There's a difference between currency issuers and currency users. You and I are currency users as private citizens. We use currency to engage in exchanges, so do businesses. Currency issuers are, are the central bank, all right? And while we have to worry about financing our spending, currency issuers don't because they can issue currency to finance their spending. And that gives them significant leeway in doing that. Uh, and so a currency issuer does not face the same constraints because they can print money. They can issue currency in order to pay bills, to service the debt, uh, and so on. Now, one of the kind of mistakes I think critics of this make is they say, well, what about hyperinflation? Oh, the, the modern monetary theory people don't believe in inflation. That's not true. They do recognize there's inflation. So there are constraints on, on how much you can do. But here's the thing. One of the things they point out is that inflation can be tamed, not necessarily through reducing the money supply, but through taxation. So they view as one of the key aspects, or, or many people that subscribe to that theory, view one of the key drivers of inflation to be monopoly power and corporate greed, which again is something you hear quite commonly in, in developed countries today. Um, yeah, and the number of times I've heard that the inflation that like the U.S. is experiencing right now, it's due to, to increases in greed. And, you know, that's that's a very common thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not it's not just in the United States and Europe. I've heard people say it, too. And so it's. It's a common art. And again, this is in some sense, these are, are not new arguments. There was something called functional finance. I think in the 60s, Abba Lerner was one of the main drivers. And functional finance was the idea that government should use fiscal policy to achieve certain fis, uh, uh, social goals uh, and that there's significant leeway in, in um, uh, issuing currency and you don't worry about deficits or they're secondary or tertiary in terms of their concern. But so what the, the, the MMT people 
uh, tend to argue is that given that the the greedy part or the the corp monopoly power, you need taxation in order to reduce spending, uh, targeted taxation, and heavy regulation on corporations and other sources of monopoly power. So what is the response to this? Well, there's numerous responses. You can talk about the relevance of deficits. This is something economists have, have argued about for a long time. You can talk about relative price distortions, um, as you and I were talking about, which is when you intervene in markets, you distort price signals, and that's going to distort production. So there's always a cost. You can, nothing is costless. You can't just issue money and have no cost. Uh, you can't intervene in markets and have no cost. Now, you might judge that the benefits outweigh the cost, but there's a cost. The other thing you'll oftentimes hear the some of the MMT people argue for is a guarantee um, job program. So they'll say there should be a, a job program guaranteed by government. Usually, you know, again, these are arbitrary numbers, but something like 15 to $17 per hour. So what are arguments related to that? Well, things like crowding out effects. Uh, you're going to distort labor markets. So it's true that you might employ people that otherwise can't find jobs, but you also might end up bidding away people that would have worked in the private sector. And it doesn't just have to be on, on mon monetary income because you might say, well, no, that's such a low income. Maybe it's the general environment. Maybe the government job is more cushy than working in a private sector job or more stable. And so that attracts labor away from the private sector into the public sector. It, then pri private sector people need to bid that labor away. And you say, well, that's great. Now labor gets more money. Yes. But then in order to remain profitable, you need to raise your prices, which has what effect? Well, it typically falls upon those who have the tightest income constraint, uh, the, 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 the economically vulnerable uh, and so on. But the other thing I just want to mention very quickly is that the, 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 this theory, like many macro theories, are a-institutional, meaning they, they, they're, they're almost designed and operate in an institutional vacuum. So no one asks, who is going to do all this stuff? Like, let's, let's put it aside for, for a moment whether taxation or regulation is, is desirable or not. Let's say it is. So all the stuff they want, let's do it. Well, who's going to do it? There has to be human beings that are in the position. And who's going to do it? People in politics. So then this comes back to you cannot talk about policy without talking about the selection mechanisms in the political space. And then the, the burden that is placed on political institutions, both in terms of the knowledge. So how do they know how to allocate resources to combat climate change, to combat social justice issues? Even if you want to pursue those things, you need to have certain knowledge to do it. Then on top of that, what makes you think that once you grant the significant power to people, that private interests are not going to come out of the woodwork and go after those rents, th those resources, as hard as they can, because they want to capture a slice of the pie. And if you start allocating millions or billions of dollars to social justice issues, all of a sudden, you're going to have people trying to get as much of that as they can. And then you have to ask yourself, who is in the best position to capture the biggest slice of that pie? Is it the vulnerable people or is it the politically well-connected? And so there's that. Then, of course, there's, well, what are you going to do when someone who, who you don't like comes to power? Someone who has different social goals than you. And that's something that people forget. They feel quite comfortable advocating for 
the wielding of discretionary power when their person or their party or their group is in charge. But that's not always going to be the case. And, and so people analytically, when they're thinking about different policies, would be wise to, to, to uh, uh, kind of exercise David Hume, the famous Scottish Enlightenment philosopher's his political maxim. The, 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 the Hume's political maxim was when we're thinking about constitutional rules, assume the knave is in charge. So assume that the worst person in society is in charge. What does that mean for this? Well, one check on our all of our thinking we can do is when we want to advocate for a policy, one thing we can think about is let's assume that a, a less than ideal politician or policymaker can be a real person or a hypothetical person is in power. Would you want them to have control over that discretionary power? And if the answer to that is no, then, then that might mean that you need to rethink the policy and what you want them to do in the first place. It seems like feedback and the feedback that we get from either the market or the becomes very important um, in the Austrian framework. Um, and so some of those interventions that you're talking about, distorting the feedback that decision makers are getting um, can you speak to a little bit about kind of the different types of feedback between kind of that market process and that political process? Yeah. Um, because why can't I just learn the same information from, you know, uh, voting? Why can't, why isn't that a sufficient form of feedback? Yep. And so the, the overarching framework, so let me step back to, to, since we're talking about the takeaways here for policy, here's the overarching framework or way of thinking about it, this issue of adaptability. We are imperfect humans who live in a constantly changing world with a, a, a uh, with uncertainty. And so we can't know the future for certain. We're going to make mistakes. Adapting means adjusting in the face of change. And so what does adaptability require? Knowledge or feedback loops, as you were putting it, and the incentive to act on those feedback loops. Markets are highly adaptable. They provide knowledge through the process of interacting between people. So knowledge emerges out of the process and it, it offers an incentive to act on that knowledge. That is, if a business is making typewriters when people want computers, they're going to suffer losses. And they might say, well, I don't care about that feedback. Well, then you go out of business because we have something called a budget constraint, your bank account. At some point, you run out of money or can't raise new money. In politics adaptability is different. And the reason it's different is because the connection between ultimate consumer preferences, and by consumers here, I just mean the citizenry, and the actions of politicians are loose. There, there, there's a lot of wedges in between. And one of the reasons is what economists call principal agent problems, which are information asymmetries, which is it's very hard for you and I or any voter to tightly monitor what politicians are doing. And it's not just politicians, it's all the people in politics, because of course, politicians get elected to be our representatives, but then they hire bureaucrats, they hire private contractors. How do we monitor all these people? Now you might say, well, how do you do that in a private firm? You don't monitor everything they do. And, that, and the answer to that is that's correct because we have other ways of monitoring it, profit and loss. Right, that that is what enables us to do it. Con contestation, competition. I can go to other competitors, or other competitors can enter the market if I am not being satisfied as a consumer. 
I can refrain. Businesses can't tax me. They cannot extract resources from me at gunpoint or, or the threat of gunpoint. So then you move into the realm of politics. Politics, what happens? You vote. Well, voting is a weak form of feedback because everyone gets one vote, which is a good thing on certain margins, but also a poor thing from the standpoint of you can't measure the intensity of preferences. You might be really, really unhappy with something, and I'm kind of indifferent behind it uh, about it, but we both get one vote. And so there's no way to differentiate the intensity of preferences. Voting takes place uh, uh, very infrequently. Uh, and so that's problematic as well. Uh, and there's a host of other issues about political knowledge. So what can and can't we know? Uh, even someone that wants to be really informed about politics uh, lacks a lot of information uh, just because it's not accessible. Uh, if you wanted to learn about the operations of the national security state because you want to make sure politicians are protecting you, you can gain very little information because it's all highly secretive. So how are you going to be an informed voter then? And so there's this wedge between the adaptability in politics and markets. Politicians don't use their own money. They can issue money. Uh, they can uh, uh, issue debt. They can tax people. Uh, uh, and so you get all these disjoints in politics that you don't have in markets that reduces the adaptability. And we all experience this. We've all had kind of unsatisfactory experiences with uh, various government bureaus. Uh, and we're quite limited in what we're able to do in terms of, of feedback when that happens. We've had bad experiences in private businesses too, but there's mechanisms for feedback, whether it is going somewhere else, whether it's leaving a, a negative Yelp review, uh, complaining to the manager or so on, who has an incentive to respond to that. And so these differences, I think, are important for thinking through what government and policy can and cannot do. Uh, and that's an important aspect rather than simply just coming up with policies that might be nice on paper. We need to think about the process through which they're implemented and the institutional environment of politics. And so that's something else that comes out of this broader discussion. Well, we're almost out of time. Um, I just wanted to ask you one last question. Did you have any, in addition to the, the book recommendation you had already made, are there any readings or any blogs or podcasts other than this one, of course, that you might recommend to listeners who are interested in learning more? Sure. Well, you know, my colleague, Don Boudreaux, who is well known to, to Fraser, he edits the, the book series that we're part of and, and, uh, is involved with Fraser in a variety of ways. He He's a wonderful uh, communicator of economic ideas and he is a blog, Cafe Hayek. He writes articles, uh, new, uh, articles ranging from op-eds to longer newspaper articles. And he is an amazing communicator of the ideas that you and I have been talking about. So I recommend that. Um, I, I am part of something called the Hayek program at George Mason University. Uh, and the scholars affiliated with this program have a, 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 a we have a podcast as well as uh, uh, we write for popular audiences as well as academic books. And that's another outlet to, to look at. And then the final thing I'll mention is if you look at the end of the book that Pete and I did um, on Austrian economics, we put together a reading list and we broke it down by kind of beginner, intermediate and advanced. And so that's a great resource for uh, people who are interested in, in learning more about the things that we've had the opportunity to discuss today. Well, thank you so much for joining me and, and talking about one of my favorite schools of thought, the Austrian School of Thought. All right. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to EssentialScholars.org to learn more. See you next time. Thank you.